Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning to worship together, to seek the Lord in prayer, and to dig into God's word together. Uh, as was likely given away by our sermon bumper, uh, today we begin a new series in the Old Testament book of Jonah. Now, before we move on, what is the first thing that comes into your head when you think of the story of Jonah? Now, while I can't be sure, since I'm not in your living rooms, I, I assume that what came to mind for the majority of us is a whale or the big fish. Whether you've grown up in church or not, the mention of Jonah will forever trigger images like this, like this, like that, maybe a picture like that in most of our minds. And whether you've grown up in uh, church or not, this is the image of Jonah that kind of resonates with us. And, and while the story does indeed have a big fish in it, the problem we can run into is that we can assume that the story is about the fish, or we can get caught up uh, talking about the fish, and, and we miss what the book of Jonah is actually about. You, you see, I'm not sure how many uh, people know this, but the fish in the book of Jonah is actually only mentioned in three verses in the entire book. It's not expanded on. It's not focused on. It's not thoroughly described or pointed to as any significance beyond a tool used by God, a, a mere detail in a more important story. In fact, if we were to let the frequency of mentions in this book dictate what the story is about, it would be more accurate to describe the story of Jonah as Jonah and the ship, or Jonah and the sea, or Jonah and the great city, perhaps Jonah and the withering plant. You see, all of these are mentioned more than the fish that we so often mistakenly affirm as a main character or focus of the text that we read. But more than any of these things, the character that is by far spoken of the most in the book of Jonah, even more than Jonah himself, is God. Or as the text most often describes him, the Lord. In fact, if my count is accurate, there are only 14 verses in the entire book that do not mention God intentionally or by name. That's over 70% of the, the verses in this text that specifically mention Jonah's God. So this book is not a story about Jonah and his big fish. It's actually a story about Jonah and his big God. Which is why I'm so excited about the next 10 weeks as we dig into this text together. You see, we're not here to learn about a fish, even a man. The text of this prophetic book exists to teach us about God. And boy, do we have a lot to learn about him. He is the main character. 
He is the hero. He is the central feature. He is the one we should think about when we hear someone mention Jonah. In this text, we are invited to take a good look at God, his character, his virtue, his action, and in turn to see ourselves in light of him, which is in reality the goal of all of the scriptures, to understand God better, to come to know him more, and to see ourselves more clearly as a result. And that is my prayer for us, that at the end of this series, we won't be talking about a fish, but that our response will be to worship a loving Merciful God. Now with that said, we're going to start off this series by reading the entire text of the book of Jonah. It's 48 verses in total, so it's not short, but it is doable. Now the reason that I want us to read it in succession uh, is that I think it's important for us to know the text in its entirety So that as we address the themes week by week and work through the story verse by verse and section by section, that we have the entire context in mind and can have complete conversations about the things that are there for us in this important book. There there are many sections of scripture that are meant to be unpacked piece by piece, that build off of each other. But I think that, that, that the narrative of Jonah is best discussed with the complete picture in view. So to begin this series, would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Jonah, where we will be for a while this morning. Now, if you're unsure where Jonah is, it's simple. It's right there between Obadiah and Micah, (laughs) as if that's helpful for anyone. Uh, No, I would encourage you to find uh, the table of contents at the front of your Bible and look for Jonah and then flip there uh, depending on where your table of contents is tells you, or you can find it, uh, it's about uh, 15 or 20 pages, depending on your Bible, from the end of the Old Testament. So if you open your Bible and you, you see Matthew or the Gospels, you can just flip backwards a little bit into the Old Testament and you'll find it pretty soon. But I will say this, once you have found Jonah, once you've flipped there and you have it, I encourage you to mark it somehow with a bookmark or a piece of paper so that we can get to it quickly each week. As, as the text will always be our springboard throughout the series, and we will open to the book of Jonah every Sunday. So uh, let's settle in and listen together to the words of the Lord as found in the book of Jonah. And again, get comfortable because we're going to be reading the whole thing. So here is the word of the Lord as found in the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that threatened to to break the ship up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck 
where there he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked, What should we do to you to make the sea, the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters, uh, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A uh, fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many livestock? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would teach us and equip us with it. Amen. So that is the book of Jonah. That is the story. It's in its entirety. Uh, For some, it may be shocking how short it is. Uh, For others, it may be surprising to you that you'd never heard that last chapter before. That your Sunday school teachers, veggie tale videos, and children's Bibles seem to present a happy ending with Jonah celebrating the repentance of Nineveh once he finally came around and delivered the message. Whatever it is that you may be feeling, that is the account of the prophet Jonah and his really big God. Now, 
I'm really excited for us to dig into this text piece by piece, to pull out all that God has for us in this book. I'm confident that we will be challenged, that we will be encouraged, perhaps even rubbed the wrong way along the way, made to feel uncomfortable as we force ourselves to look in the mirror and perhaps see a little more of Jonah in us than we would like to admit. But today, as is wise, at the beginning of every series, I want to set up the context of the text by way of introduction. So that that we're able to see and understand as best we can what it is that we'll be digging into over the next number of weeks. And the best way I know how to do that is to ask the W questions. Who, what, when, where, why? To provide us with the background that we need. So we're going to start with the question, who? Who are the players mentioned in this book? And we'll start with Jonah. Who is this Jonah we read about? Well, Jonah was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II, who ruled Israel from 782 to 753 before the Common Era, or roughly 2,775 years ago. Now, if you recall, our text did not give us that information. In fact, the only information we receive in the book of Jonah is that Jonah was the son of Amittai. That's it. But we're able to fill in the blanks from a text about the same Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14, which says this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam II, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam I, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Label Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So this is how we know who this Jonah is. Jonah, son of Amittai, is recorded in the Israelite history books as a prophet of God to the king Jeroboam II. Now along the way uh, in this series, we're going to come back to this text to to inform us a little bit more about Jonah, but, but that's sufficient for now. Another thing to note is that Jonah is from the northern kingdom of Israel, not of Judah. Which means that he would have been serving as a younger contemporary of Elisha in the wake of the ministry of the famous northern prophet Elijah. So that's the time frame in which this is happening, in which Jonah served God as a prophet. Or perhaps another reference point, uh, a vague reference point, is that Jonah would have served roughly 150 years after the death of King Solomon. Now, For those who perhaps are unsure about what a prophet is, uh, the, the job of a prophet within the people of Israel was to stand between God and man, to speak on behalf of God to his people. They were like messengers of God. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, God would often send a word of instruction, warning, or judgment through a prophet 
to the king or to the people as a whole so that they would act accordingly or prepare themselves for what was to come. And that's Jonah's line of work. And it's important for us to note this. You see, Jonah was used to getting a word from the Lord, right? It's what he did. It was his job. This phenomenon that we read in our text today wasn't new to Jonah. He had received a word from the Lord before, and he had passed on that word. This wasn't a new experience in that sense. But what was new was that this word wasn't for God's people, Israel. It was for Israel's enemy, the Assyrian Empire. Which brings us to the who question of Nineveh. What do we know about this great city we read about that Jonah was so displeased to travel to and even more displeased that they listened to him? Nineveh. What do we know about this great city? Well, we know that the city of Nineveh was one of the capital cities of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. As our text says uh, at this time, it it held over 120,000 people. Now, the Assyrian Empire at the time was known for its cruelty and violence. Uh, Professor of Near Eastern Archaeology, Erica Liebtrow, writes, Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Similarly, historian Simon Algin writes, While historians tend to shy away from analogies, it is tempting to see the Assyrian Empire, which dominated the Middle East from 900 to 612 BC, as a historical forebear of Nazi Germany, an aggressive murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. In in my study, I came across some uh, gruesome records and reports of Assyrian practices that I wouldn't wish upon any human being and that do not bear repeating from the pulpit today. Suffice it to say that Assyria can be described as as a terrorist State. They were ruthless and violent, where, where fear of God was non-existent and from which mercy was seldom, if ever, extended. Now, this empire was already on the move at the time of Jonah in its expansion and conquest of the known world. By the time they would be at their pinnacle, they would have become what the Encyclopedia of Ancient History describes as the first true empire in the world. Uh, Take a look at this map of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Uh, See Nineveh with the little red arrow there? You see, the dark green outline is their territory prior to the story of Jonah. And the light green is what their territory would become just years later through military conquest. Now, for those of you, uh, let's leave the map up. If, for those of you who know Near Eastern geography at all, what is included in the territory that Assyria conquers? Israel. This very civilization is the one that would wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, of which Jonah was a part. To to say that they were enemies of Israel would be an understatement. 
To say that Jonah would not be happy about this assignment would be a severe underestimation. His task was to bring a message into enemy territory, which alone would have been a scary thought. But to Jonah, knowing the character of God and the chance of forgiveness that came along with his message would have been even scarier. Okay, so in summary, we have a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel named Jonah being called to deliver a message or a warning to the ruthless enemy state of Syria. So that's the who involved, which brings us to the what of this book. What exactly is the book of Jonah? The first answer to that question is that it is a prophetic book. The book of Jonah is a prophetic book. The Bible consists of a variety of genres and styles, right? From history books to letters, biographies, legal books, poems, and wisdom literature, as well as what are called prophetic books. Now, in the Old Testament, there are 17 prophetic books, five of which are called the major prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And 12, which are called the minor prophets. Not because they're of any less importance, but because they're shorter in length and usually have a little bit more of a narrow audience. And this book, the book of Jonah, is one of those 12 minor prophets. Now, while it is one of the minor prophets recounting a message from God through one of his servants, it is written differently than the other prophets. As you know, as we just read, it focuses less on the message being delivered, which is typical of the other prophetic books, and it focuses more on the story of the prophet himself in delivering the message. So in this way, the text of Jonah, while still a prophetic book, reads more like a historical uh, account of a prophetic mission. Similar to the way in which First and Second Kings describes the prophetic activity of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. So the book is placed within the minor prophets and is prophetic in nature, but shares the narrative characteristics of a historical account like we read, uh, like we read throughout the historical books. Which brings us to another important characteristic of the book of Jonah, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here. The book of Jonah is a historical book. It is a prophetic book, and it is a historical book, which means that we believe the story of Jonah actually happened as the Bible presents it. Now, there is a, a trend among uh, contemporary academics and even some uh, more liberal Christian theologians to try and explain away the things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. And so accounts like Noah, uh, Jonah, the parting of the Red Sea are, are said to be ahistorical or fictional in nature. There's no way that could have happened, so it must have a different purpose. Maybe you've wondered this yourself as you've thought about how Jonah could possibly have survived after being swallowed by a large sea creature. And so the suggestion has been, uh, has been made that perhaps stories like this are not meant to be read as history, but are rather meant to be read as a, a parable, a, a fictional story told to teach a lesson. 
or that they're allegorical, which means that the story fictitiously uses characters and events to teach something else that the characters are representing, but the story itself is not a true story. But I would like to present today a, a few brief reasons why this account is meant to be read as history and not a fictional story. And the first reason has to do with style. Quite frankly, the text itself does not present itself as fiction. The, the text, as we read, begins with the statement, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is not the introduction of a fictional story. This is the standard introduction to a prophetic account. In 1 Kings 17, 8 and 9, we read of the word of the Lord coming to Elijah. Joel 1, 1 starts off by saying exactly the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Hosea 1, 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. It's the exact same in Micah Amos, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. This is a historical, prophetic introduction that declares right off the top that this is an account of God speaking. There, there is no once upon a time or any sort of similar feature that would suggest anything other than this is recorded fact as all of the other prophets are. Another sign within the text that this is not fiction but is indeed truth is the inclusion of historical figures, right? Parables do not include real people. In the New Testament, you never hear Jesus starting a parable by saying, hey, you guys know Carl, right? Yeah, Carl, he's short hair, wears a green robe. And then once everyone nods along, yeah, we know who Carl is, then he proceeds to make up a fictional story about him. No, it doesn't work that way. You don't use real people historically verifiable people in a fictional story, or at least they didn't in the scriptures. As 20th century Bible scholar Joyce Baldwin says, parables just do not identify as historical the participants in the story as Jonah is here identified. If this were fiction, it would be unprecedented to use a historical character. And this text goes out of its way to situate this particular person, not only as Jonah, but as Jonah, the son of Amittai. This particular Jonah that we know about and is recorded in history. In addition to this, you certainly never see God identified as a fictional character in Scripture either. Throughout Scripture, any fictional parable or allegory in which God is portrayed, he is represented by a master, a king, or a father. God is never represented as a fictional character in the way that he is here. This text speaks of the Lord or God in nearly every verse. And to speak of God doing things that he never actually did as a fictional character, would be absolute blasphemy and even idolatrous. So in the style and the characters, we see that the text itself does not in any way allow the reader to concede that this is just mere fiction. Secondly, the, the historical understandings of Jonah tell us the same thing. Right? The historical understandings of Jonah, the way that people have understood Jonah throughout history, do not support this modern suggestion that this isn't real either. 
It's only within the past 100 years that this story has even been suggested as ahistorical. As scholars have uh, become uncomfortable with the truth of a, the whale, of the big fish. But prior to that, historians, theologians, early church fathers, the, the Jewish people have all read the story of Jonah as history. Even the famous first century Jewish Roman historian Josephus included this account in his history of the Jewish people based on the fact that the Jews themselves believed this to be true. So while some contemporary scholars may seek to explain away this text, they are alone in their endeavor to do so with the historical precedent being to receive Jonah as historical. Which brings us to the question of what our Lord Jesus himself thought. Jesus understanding tells us the same thing. You see, Jesus himself refers to Jonah in Matthew 12, 40, saying this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So unless Jesus was referring to his own death and resurrection as allegorical, as fiction, it's safe to say that Christ himself believed the story of Jonah to be historical. He goes on to add in Luke 11.30 that as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Right? Again, if Jesus believed Jonah's ministry to Nineveh to be ahistorical, he would not have likened his actual ministry to Jonah's fictional one, right? Now, there are several other reasons we could get into, which I believe provide more than enough reason to side with this as being a true story. But the last one I want us to leave with today is that if you are a Christian, you believe in the miraculous, right? If, if you're a Christian, you believe the miraculous, there is no reason to believe on the contrary about Jonah, right? The, the only reason, the only real hesitation that leads someone to question the validity of this historical text is their inability to explain the fish. This kind of thing doesn't happen. We can't explain it, so it must be something else. If you took the fish out of this story, there would be no reason to suggest that it's anything other than history, as is accepted about all of the rest of the, of the prophetic books, right? Questions of its historical accuracy are solely based on a desire to make the text fit our scientific understanding of the world. People don't understand how Jonah could have survived in the belly of a fish for three days, so they try to make that detail disappear. But as pastor and author Tim Keller says about our inability to make sense of this, our difficulty understanding how this could be true, he says, if you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, a far greater miracle, then there is nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally. Church, we are people of the miraculous. Right? We believe in a God that created everything we know out of nothing. We believe in a God who became human. 
We believe in a God who lived historically as a man for 33 years. We believe that this God-man performed miraculous wonders and signs, healing the sick, the blind, the lame, feeding thousands from nothing. We believe that he died on the cross, taking upon him the penalty for our sin, and that three days later he rose from the dead, conquering death completely. We believe that he listens to us, he loves us, and intervenes on our behalf when we pray, when we seek him, and as we live our lives. We believe that he's coming again, and that he will defeat evil and death completely, making a way for us to live with him for eternity. Church, I could go on, but the truth is, we already believe the miraculous. And if we believe all of this, what problem do we have believing that this God who holds the world in his hands can keep a man alive for three days in the belly of a fish? Church, we believe that God works outside the normal sometimes. It's why we're here. If we didn't believe that, uh, the Apostle Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. We have nothing if we don't believe that God works outside of the normal sometimes. We believe in the exception that the rules of science don't limit God and that he can do anything good that he pleases. So as I said in the beginning, let us not get distracted by the fish by its implausibility or how we can explain just how it happened. And instead, let us lift our eyes to the maker of the fish, the author not only of this story, but of everything that makes up every story. And may we let him speak to us over these next few months, which in itself is miraculous. So as we walk through this text, we will be approaching this text as a true story. That the scriptures do not mislead us, but they tell us of an amazingly powerful God who works actively in the lives of his children. Now with that being said, uh, there's one more what to address. This book is prophetic, historical, and it is didactic. Okay? It's a didactic book. Now a didactic book means that the narrative makes use of literary features to enhance the message of the story, okay? So uh, it, it means that there's a lesson to be learned here, or there are lessons to be learned here. This isn't history for history's sake, but the account has something to teach us as we read, right? As we've discussed, these events actually took place but it is also true that the author, whoever compiled the details into the story that we read today, intentionally told the story in such a way that we would not miss the lessons we're meant to learn. So, for example, along the way, we will come across irony, humor, intentional sentence structure, all that helps point us toward the meaning of the book of Jonah. Now, this doesn't make the story any less true. It just makes sure to enhance the telling of the story that we may be encouraged to ourselves respond better than Jonah did. So if anyone you know asks, you can tell them that the book of Jonah is a didactic historical prophetic book. Okay? Didactic, historical, prophetic book. Uh, why don't you turn to the person you're with and say, I already knew that. Now, I, I know my time is almost done. 
And I want to point out that we've already covered the W's when and where when we discussed the who, right? This account takes place in the ancient Near East in the 8th century uh, before the Common Era. But the last brief question I think we can end with today is why? Why? Not why was it written. We will come across that as we go. But why for us? Why Jonah? Why are we taking two and a half months to study this story that we already finished? We already read the whole thing. And here's my base response to why Jonah. Because I said so. (laughs) Just joking. Um, (laughs) Well, kind of not. I guess I do make those types of decisions. But for real, why Jonah? Because of where we find ourselves. You see, there are about a dozen themes in this book, probably more, that I think are so timely for us today. You see, it, it doesn't take much to realize that our culture is polarizing. We prayed about that this morning. And that there's a terrible lack of grace and mercy in our world today. And we have been left to navigate these waters that we find ourselves in. And the book of Jonah will bring us to a place where we are forced to ask timely questions about otherness, about political allegiance, about love and hatred, grace and mercy, God's will, evangelism, following God's word. Is God in control? Just to name a few. You see, God's word is always timely. It's it's always appropriate and can always speak into our lives. But I'm especially excited to study this text at this time with this body because I think that we, like Jonah, have a lot to learn. So I hope you're ready to dig in. As As I told someone last week, this book will be good for us. Not necessarily fun for us, but definitely good for us. One thing I can say for sure is that we will not be affirmed in our selfishness and bigotry, but it is my hope that we will be affirmed in our trust and dependence on God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is true, Lord, that we can find historical uh, documents, we can find the background of all that's going on that helps us helps enhance this message for us. We thank you for details like this. God, we thank you that you have been the author of history from the beginning of time, and we thank you that you are still writing history today. We pray, Lord, that over these next number of weeks that you would teach us, that you would hold a mirror up in front of us, that we would see ourselves rightly, and we would look back to you, that our trust of you would grow through this process as we see just how gracious and merciful and loving you are and how you have called us to be the same. We love you. Be with us as we study. Teach us. Change us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.